Are you all excited that spring is actually kind of feels here in addition to being here? It is wonderful. It's wonderful. Well, I've, since nobody's in the first three rows, um, I have a question to start off this morning. How many of you know anything? Oh my, there's a lot of you who don't think you know anything. How many of you know anything? Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where we find out this declaration that we know that we all have knowledge. So there you go. You know, I know, we all know that we all have knowledge. Later this morning, as we continue through our study of our church's statement of faith, and now we're in our church's covenant, we come to a thing that we engage in, that we have covenanted together to engage in. And it is, we, we, we say, that we engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge. We strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge. And later this morning, we're going to look at that more specifically. But in my study and in my life, I have heard a proof text used many times. Do you guys know what a proof text is? A proof text is a little section of the Bible, a little section of Scripture that is quoted to prove a point. And most of the time... When we talk about it, we use it in a negative sense, meaning that someone is, is using a proof text to make a point, but yet there's a problem with what they're doing. Any ideas why there might be a problem? Yes? That's right, because they're only using a small portion of the context. So they look and they have a proof text and they lift a little phrase out of the scriptures to make a point. And it's not necessarily always wrong, but it's most often incomplete. Let me tell you about a conversation I eavesdropped on and then I inserted myself into. You ever seen me do that? I eavesdropped on a conversation among young, some young boys some time ago, and I was pleased to hear these boys using Scripture, except for the fact that they were proof-texting it. And they were using only three words out of a verse. And I was pleased they knew those three words, but what troubled me is that the point they were making with those three words was wrong. Those three words in the Bible are these. Knowledge puffeth up. How many of you believe that? I do. But, did you know that right after that phrase there's the word but? If we're going to use those three words, we have to at least finish the sentence. It says, knowledge puffeth up, but charity, that is true, genuine love, edifieth. So puffing up is pride and arrogance, uh, superiority to other people. 
Edifying is the building up of both yourself and other people. And so we have to be very careful to note here that and keep this phrase, knowledge puffeth up, in context. So when this phrase was used, and by the way, this isn't the only, that one conversation I mentioned to you is not the only time I have heard this used. I've heard this used in many different occasions, read it on blogs and other places, these three words taken out of context, taken just right out of here, and the context ignored. Do you know what the point was, and many times people have used this to describe? It has been used as a proof text or an excuse to not seek knowledge. To not seek knowledge. Dear brothers and sisters, that's not the point of this teaching. In fact, the point of this teaching is to pursue knowledge, and we're going to find out later this morning especially that that very much is what God wants us to do. But that knowledge all by itself in a vacuum is terribly, dreadfully insufficient and incomplete. And in this teaching here it is, it must be coupled with charity. It must be coupled with love. So don't ever let anyone use these three words to say that knowledge is bad. This isn't saying that knowledge is bad. Knowledge is actually very good. Now, I'll put a qualifier on that. The scriptures also teach us to be simple concerning evil. There is a lot of knowledge of evil that we need to be simple concerning. We don't need to know all about the wickedness and evil that is in the world. But the pursuit of pure knowledge is a very good thing. We just have to recognize that it is insufficient and it is incomplete and it must have love. It must have love. It must have love. Now, there's a lot of other things that knowledge must have. And we're going to talk about that later this morning. But 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is really important. And I, I struggle so many times when I study because as I begin to study, especially on a topical message like this, you find all kinds of truths about a particular, a particular topic. And it's really hard to decide what not to include in a sermon. Um, I have a hard time not preaching six sermons in one sermon. And that gets hard, really, really hard. And so I decided in this one, let's take, because 1 Corinthians 8 is so rich and so practical, I decided let's take and let's deal with 1 Corinthians 8 all by itself, independent of the topical study we do on, on knowledge. And later on, we're going to go through several points on the topic of knowledge. And the truth is every one of those points could be a whole sermon. So later this morning, I'm going to preach 10 sermons in one. And here's just one getting pulled right out just briefly. Don't get afraid. I'm not going to preach 10 sermons in one later. 10 points, but they could all be sermons. So what is the context of this? I would, I'm tempted to have you raise your hands to see how many of you have heard the proof text, knowledge puffeth up. I imagine it's more prevalent and common than just to me. It's used quite regularly. People have used it and used it in that way to justify ignorance, to justify um, not, not pursuing or valuing knowledge. But what's the context of it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8? And what is its application? 
Well, let's read it in context. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth had written Paul a letter asking him several questions. And he's answered many of those questions. And here in chapter 8, he's going to answer another question. Now, as touching things offered to idols, there's the question. They're asking him a question. What do we do with things offered to idols? There is food in those days that would be offered to idols and then butchered and served up in pagan feasts and then others would be sold in the supermarkets. And there was a trip up for some people over this question of food offered to idols. Now, did you know that preachers have an interesting perspective of people? A lot of you were following me all the way up until I started talking about things offered to idols and some of you just glazed. Because this is, what is the relevancy of that to us? What is the relevancy of it? Is our food offered to idols? We don't have this issue specifically. But we have to be careful not to take the historical application of truth and discard the truth because of its historical context. What we need to do is understand the historical context and then ask ourselves, today, what are things offered to idols? But that's not the only question to ask here. What are things that will trip up or cause a brother to stumble because they do not have a complete or a full knowledge and understanding of God's truth. The question here is, and the reason why it has to do with knowledge and love, is what Paul says. We know that we all have knowledge. Let me just read a few verses without commentary, and then we'll come back. Follow with me. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth, builds up. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. He knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. We don't have time this morning to go through all of Paul's answer to this question because the truth is the answer to this question begins in chapter 1 and goes all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. It's all one passage, one speech. But we're going to touch on the highlight of this question of knowledge and love. We all have knowledge. It says here that if a man think, if you think you've got knowledge, um, don't puff yourself up because um, really 
Yeah, if, you, if you imagine you're a smart person, you've got a lot of knowledge, you know a lot of stuff, and you think that makes you special, it really means you got it all wrong and you don't know anything. And the real truth of the matter is that the more you know, if you really have a proper perspective, the more you'll realize how little you know. You ever realize that? The more you know, the more you should realize how little you know. That's his point. The more you know, the more you should realize how little you know, which means you should not be puffed up. Well, there was a particular fact that many at Corinth knew, and Paul knew it. There is a fact that he knew. But yet, there were other people in the church who may have known it intellectually, but they didn't know it in their heart. It wasn't a part of them. What is that that some people in the church of Corinth knew that others didn't have or know deeply that caused Paul to say, you need to have love? Well, let's look here at what he says. Now, verse 4, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know... Here he's going to say what he knows and what some of them knew, but not all of them knew. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. These idols are nothing more than wood, silver, gold. They're nothing. They're nothing. There is only one God. He says, we know this. We know this. For he goes on in verse 5. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And so he is basically making the point that even though a food was sacrificed to an idol and is now served as food, the fact that it was offered to an idol is insignificant because there's, there, is, there is no idol. There is no God but one God. And it's basically free to eat. Now, he confirms this, we know, much more clear back in Romans chapter 14. And he says in Romans 14, 14, I know... Here again, knowledge. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Here again, he makes that statement. Now dealing with clean and unclean. But notice here again, he's saying here that we have knowledge that whatsoever thing is offered to an idol is offered to nothing. The fact that it's offered to an idol is insignificant. And we know this, we have this knowledge now, most of you are sitting out here, me too, and we think, of course, we all know that. And we don't even know anybody who trips up over things offered to idols. We know that. So will this knowledge puff us up so that we go and we know that something is offered to idols and we sit down and we eat it and we know that there's a brother or a sister in Christ who struggles with this? 
They may know this truth, but they don't know this truth in their heart. It's not a part of them. They're still troubled by it. Their conscience is still struggling through the fact that this was offered to idols. Now, I know, and most all you know, that an idol is nothing. No, it's no big deal. So let's just eat. Enjoy that T-bone. Right? Or wrong? You see how knowledge can puff up and say, well, this is the way it is. I know it to be so. And it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. This is what is truth. And what's interesting here is that it is truth. It's not just a personal opinion or preference. It is truth. It is true knowledge. But will you take that true knowledge and not care about the ones who haven't yet been able to grasp it and truly receive it? And will you cause them to stumble? Will you cause offense to them? That was the problem going on here is that they would sit down and some people would go, oh, well, you just don't know this, and if any good Christian knows that an idol's nothing, I mean, what's your problem? Let's just eat. You eat. Was that showing love? Was that showing love, yes or no? Yeah. No. no. So do you see the knowledge is there, and Paul admits that it's knowledge. We know it to be so. But having this knowledge, it should not puff us up but it should cause us to want to build up others. And he goes on and makes this point in verse 7. After he makes the point that we have all this freedom, he says, how be it? There is not in every man that knowledge. Not everyone has in them that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee with hast knowledge... You're one who knows the truth. You have it. You not just know it. You have it. Sit at meat in the idol's temple shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols, and through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. There's a trumbling, stumbling that's taking place here. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. So the whole history of this is, is that Paul is saying, you have knowledge. That's a good thing. He's not saying there's anything wrong with knowledge, but he's making the point that if you've got knowledge, you should know how little you actually do know. And if you have knowledge, you need to also have love, knowing that the same knowledge you have, others don't have. And so because you love them and you want to build them up, you will not do certain things. He says at the end, I would. I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. 
I am not going to cause my brother who doesn't have this knowledge to offend. Now, it's kind of interesting to me because I actually have a conversation as I've meditated on this passage for the Holy Spirit and for Paul. Why don't you just, Paul, tell the people at Corinth to just educate all those ignorant people about the truth of there being no, no gods but one God? Do you see the point there? Any of you have some initial responses to that question? Brother Yusuf? Isn't that what this letter accomplishes? You're right. He goes on in it. Yes, sir. That's right. A growing church is always going to have people at the varying degrees of knowledge. And so you're always going to have to have love. What Brother Yusuf also shared is, is that part of the purpose of this letter is also communicating truth. Paul is affirming the truth. And it's really interesting, though, how he's affirming it. He's not affirming it by addressing the weak or ignorant people. He's addressing it by addressing those who already have received it, teaching them how they're to interact with those who haven't received it. Thereby, he's accomplishing both. But again, he's doing it in love. He is very strategic and how he is doing it. And may I say, that is a brilliance of the Holy Spirit. It's oftentimes how it works. There's a, there's a popular saying, perhaps you've heard it. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's not a Bible phrase, but I think it is a print, true principle that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. People need to know how much you care. And when they know how much you care, they will value what you know and can teach them. So the popular phrase, people don't know how much you know, but how much you care. Do we have love? Do we care? Paul is making this point of knowledge and he's making the statement, you have knowledge that the meat offered to idols is just meat, and you are free to eat it. But don't let this knowledge puff you up. But may this knowledge be coupled with charity that edifies, that builds up others. So Paul's not saying ignore knowledge put down knowledge. In fact, he is actually teaching knowledge. He does it here. He does it over in Romans. His point is, is that the knowledge must be together with the love in going forth and helping people. That's one reason why in our church covenant, if you look in the back of your hymnals, it's there. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Earlier, I skipped the phrase let me read what I read earlier. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge. What phrase did I miss or skip? One that we preached on last time. 
We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love. That's the foundation, to walk together in Christian love. Then, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge. Because you see, knowledge in and of itself puffeth up. But knowledge that is in the fear of the Lord and in the love of God will edify. It's vitally important that we recognize the two coupled together. I told you earlier that this conversation about things offered to idols is not just addressed in chapter 8, but also 9, 10, and the first verse of chapter 11. Chapter 9, we don't have time to go into all of it, but basically Paul presents again another fact, another piece of knowledge. And it's interesting, he is also teaching truth. He is basically communicating to the church in chapter 9 that I know and you know that I am worthy of pay for the ministry that I have to you and among you. And so do those who labor with you in the Lord. They are deserving of pay. Paul takes that knowledge and he says, but I'm not going to let this knowledge puff up. Because he knew that at Corinth there were people who didn't accept this knowledge or hadn't yet accepted it. They knew it, but they hadn't accepted it. And so Paul, knowing that was the case in Corinth, is making a case really not so much for himself, but for all of those pastors who would come in the future, you might say, say, to present the truth that they are worthy of hire for remuneration for their work. But he says, to help you understand this truth and to walk with you in love, knowing that you all haven't received it, I took nothing from you. I did that because of love. And then in chapter 10, he deals with a little bit more specific issue regarding this whole meat offered idols thing. He begins to teach more about it because you know what some of the issue is for a lot of us? We look at the, begin to have this knowledge that things offered to idols, well, the idol is nothing, no big deal. It's just meat. Enjoy the meat. Well, sometimes we take liberty and we start extending it and applying it to things where it doesn't belong. There's a little bit of reading between the lines here with Paul, but understanding the context of what was going on here is that there were a lot of people who agreed with Paul and understood there's no big deal with eating meat offered to idol. I go to the grocery store, and he actually says, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the shambles, when you go to the market, don't go around saying, now, was this offered to an idol? Was this offered to an idol? Just look at it as meat and buy it and don't ask. And by the way, if somebody does say, oh, by the way, this is offered to an idol, don't touch it because you don't want to offend or cause a weaker brother to stumble. But there's another part to things that were going on. And though the idol is nothing, there are demons who are worshipped as gods. And there were feasts, especially in Corinth, that were demon feasts. And so you may say, oh, well, an idol is nothing, so that means it's no big deal for me to go to this demon party. You might say a demon party. Just so you know, that's not something that has gone away in history. 
they still exist. Parties where there is evil and wickedness. And in chapter 10, he's basically making the point saying, listen, you have a table of fellowship. He's building up to go into chapter 11 about the Lord's table, by the way. You have a fellowship of a table here that is holy and sacred, a communion with Jesus Christ. What communion does Christ have with devils? So one of the points you could draw from this is in connection is that so you have a liberty, but don't take that liberty to a point where you don't have the liberty. Because there is no fellowship between Christ and demons. And beware. Isn't that interesting how that's still kind of a problem today where people take a liberty and they carry it to a point where they ought not? It's a serious issue. That's why all three of these chapters do continue together in all of it. But much of it has to do with, coming back to, knowledge. Knowledge is important. And the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And don't let knowledge puff you up. And don't let knowledge be without love. They have to go together. They have to go together. So the whole point of what I want to communicate here today is, is that proof text. Knowledge puffeth up. It's okay to use that because it is true. We're going to talk about that a little bit later this morning. It is true. But it doesn't mean that the problem is with knowledge. The problem is with the human heart who does not have a fear of God, a love for God. You see what he says in chapter 8? But if any man love God, the same is known of him. We love him because he first loved us. Do we have that connection with our God in fear, reverence for him, awe and respect and true godly fear that results in a love for him, which is also then extended to a love for others, so that when what we have in knowledge is we pursue it, it is with the foundation of a right view of God and an outflow of love. The key to knowledge is a foundation and a right relationship and knowledge of who God is and an outflow that is an outflow of love. Now, I've got a question. How many of you have found any meat in the grocery stores marked with a special icon saying it's offered to idols or not? I haven't noticed it. We have all kinds of cool little icons and notes of things. USDA approved. Uh, we, we have kosher. You, have, you know those little labors, labels? Uh, now they're getting gluten-free labels, all these different kind of labels. You won't find a label about meat offered to idols. So what are the meat offered to idols in South Bend in 2023? It's a question that individuals need to ask, but let me give you some principles to help you begin to understand and identify them. It has very much to do with two things. One, things that cause conflict. What are things that cause conflict? Two, liberty. Oops, that's a trip up one, isn't it? Because we're Americans and we are all about being free. 
and we are patriots, and we're all about defending freedom. I'm all for being a patriot. I'm all for defending freedom. But is my knowledge of the freedom that I have both in Christ and the freedom that I have as an American, is that based and built upon the foundation of a right relationship with God, a fear of Him? And then does that knowledge flow into love? It's an important question to ask. And it's a balance that we must understand and determine. What are those things? And how will we live it? How will we? I'm reluctant to launch into specifics. You have any idea why? Because sometimes those specifics may result in some debates and some that have not this knowledge of freedom will trip up. But let me encourage you, this conversation needs to continue for building up and developing. Paul identified one here very specifically and he dealt with it. He actually dealt with three and there was knowledge presented, but with the goal of love. So, I'm curious. Anyone here brave enough to bring up a modern-day meat offered to idols? Cows that are causing <laughs> We're all chuckling and laughing. There you have a question. Politics, global warming. Is there knowledge and things you know about the end of this world? Do you know it? Now, how do you interact with those people who have not the knowledge of what the end of this world is? And they may be willingly ignorant of it, but how do you then show them love in that conflict? Newsflash, if we are engaging this world and seeking to win the lost, we should be finding people coming in among our midst who have absolute belief in global warming because that's what they've been taught. And do we mock them or mock the question? Or do we, with the knowledge we have, not allow ourselves to be puffed up, but in love to edify them? I'm not saying ignore the truth or to cast the truth off. We still embrace the truth. We still embrace truth. We don't compromise truth. But on how we engage it is in love. Good one. I don't know that we have internal conflict on that one, but I will guarantee you that if we are truly seeking to engage the lost around us, we sure will. Won't we? We sure will. I forget somebody gave me an illustration of this just recently of, of that particular topic that's just permeating um, questions or issues. Oh, I know where it was on that topic. Um, 
there was, there's an assignment for a 4-H fair project. And in, this, in the state of Indiana, it's through Purdue University. They're the big sponsor reinforcement of the whole question of things. And so they had a research project, idea suggestion for 4-Hers to do on a particular creature. And, and what was really kind of interesting to me is that they limited, it was basically a question about how global warming impacts a particular animal. And that was this topic. But the thing that was intriguing to me is, is that they said you can only reference sources that, and then they limited their research sourcing. It was kind of like, ooh, ouch. Mm. Kind of a problem. Um, and my wife went and did a little bit of checking, and sure enough, they're all on one side of the issue, and there's no balancing issue. We're almost out of time. Anybody else brave enough to bring up something else? Non-GMO fed beef. Is that a controversy here? I don't know of it being one. Maybe it is. Let's be careful. Christopher? Music. Music and music associations. He brings that up when we have seven minutes left. Accurate. It's a valid question. And it's a valid question with all, at least two of the three chapters involved here. Because there is music that is devilish. There's no doubt about that. It's clearly understood, more so, by the way, understood by those who practice it in the world, and Christians are the ones who are most commonly denying it. So there is an aspect in which there is music that we should have nothing to do with because it is of the world. But he mentioned something that was the question of associations, and that's really interesting. I'll give an illustration of this all since it's here that happened to me just this week. Someone very graciously invited me to their Spotify account. Now, maybe I just got myself in trouble at saying that someone invited me. Somebody paid for my subscription. So I started poking around on some different music, and I saw a song, and my wife and I put the kids to bed, and we were going to explore some different music that's out there. This happened just this week in God's providence. And um, I saw a song, and I, and I knew it, and I wondered if my wife knew it. And so I turned it on, and it was sang by one of the most beautiful voices of modern time. Beautiful. Beautiful rendition of it. The words of it. I didn't exegete the words, but at first glance, the words of it were beautiful and true, speaking of love and love eternal. And I listened to it, and I had my wife sitting next to me, and it was a love song. It wasn't, it wasn't tied to anything spiritual, but it was a love song. And at the end of it, I said, honey, do you know who wrote it? Now, after this conversation with my wife, to give you a little bit of heads up, I was talking to my brother the next day, and when I asked him that question, he says, I don't want to know. <laughs> Ask no questions for conscience sake. He was applying it. And I'm not going to use the title of the song right now, I don't think, because, uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> He's on the one. 
So here, I, my wife is strong enough for this knowledge, and I believe she needs to know the knowledge, okay? Um, one of the reasons is because if the song were requested for a wedding here at the church, we wouldn't use it. We wouldn't let it through. We wouldn't, we wouldn't let it through. But yet you would say, it has beautiful words, and it can be sung so beautifully. Why would we not let it through? Because we want to be very careful that we do not cause others to stumble who don't have the knowledge that the words are good and the stylings are appropriate. We still wouldn't want to trip them up. Why? Because the song was written by Elvis Presley. And I know people personally who would be tripped up over the song because when they hear the song, they see Elvis Presley in their mind singing it with an absolute inappropriate beat and an absolute inappropriate body language. And so, here is a song. Again, I haven't exegeted the words, but at first appearance and first glance, the words appear to be perfectly fine. How I heard it this week sung was perfectly appropriate. In fact, beautiful. But yet, that song would cause brethren to stumble. And so we wouldn't use it in that kind of a sense. But you know what? I'm not identifying the song again here because I know that there are some here who, have no, who probably have never even been brought up in homes where they never had any exposure to a guy named Elvis Presley. Some of you may not even know who I'm talking about. Praise God if you don't. Um, <clears throat> and now you're introduced to this song in the world of Spotify where you get fed music and the stylings are good, and the words are good, and it actually may be a sweet song to you. <gasps> but you know that sweet song going to trip up a brother just simply because of who wrote it and their experience or engagement of that song in the past. And so you have knowledge that the words are good, and you have knowledge that it is being sung skillfully and appropriately. But because you love a brother, you probably wouldn't use it at a wedding. And here, we would try to, it, it would be a conversation we'd have to not use it. Because you wouldn't want to cause your brother to stumble. That's just one illustration using an association with someone whom I think most people clearly know and understand is a, 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 of the world. It gets a little bit more complicated when you're dealing with those who are Christians. Or how about Mormon? It becomes a little bit more difficult. And how we have applied that here in this church is, is that we do ask for songs to be submitted. And every now and then, we'll just quietly flag one because there's a reason it may cause some offense or cause some stumble. And so we would ask the person who selected it out of love's sake, to not cause a brother to stumble, let's just not use this. Or we might change it if there was a word question and there's different ways of applying that. But here's the question. We do need to have knowledge, but it needs to be love. Now, one, one person has asked this question of me, and I'll deal with it now since we're on this topic. Why do we do it quietly? It's a difficult question and it's a difficult balance because there's a need for teaching just like Paul is having teaching here. But there is also a legitimate question in this where 
when you're at the market, don't ask. I had a brother one time who had submitted a brother in Christ, submitted a selection of an idea, and I said, I have a hesitation with this because I know something, and I appreciate that brother. He said, stop. The song is very meaningful to me, and I don't want to mess that up. So if you don't want to use it, let's not use it. I won't. Let's not use it. I'll drop it right now. But I don't want to know what issues are because, right, he was right. The words were good. The melody was good. The harmony was good. It was a beautiful song, but there were some things that I knew at least one person who would have a hiccup on it. And so for love, I didn't tell this person what was the question on it, and yet I valued that brother who said, that's okay, we won't use it. There is an illustration of how the music topic comes together in love. But let me make one further note. Don't use love to compromise truth because there is still music and words to music that is of the devil. And we must have no part at the table of the devil. None. So there's, you've got to keep chapter 8 alongside with chapter 10. And in fact, along with the whole book of 1 Corinthians and the whole New Testament and even the Old Testament, it's all got to be held in balance and together with each other. And we covered all of that in seven minutes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, your Spirit of God, we pray to you today, giving thanks to you for your word. We give thanks to you that the Corinthians asked this question and that you inspired Paul to so eloquently, accurately answer it, giving us a model, giving us a, a, giving us a principle to live by. <clears throat> Lord, help us, help us to seek you. May we have a fear of you. May we have a love for you. May we seek and pursue knowledge and grow in knowledge. And Lord Jesus, may you be glorified in that as it flows out in love, edifying your body, your church. And in all of this, we pray, may you be glorified. We bow to you and worship you. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much. May I encourage you to continue the conversation with love and the fear of God. Continue it. May the grace of God be with you. We'll be back here at a quarter till.